0: So hard. Ooh, Lord, my so
1: hard. don't know my trouble with God. don't know my trouble with God. welcome to the radical Reverend show and yes what a week it's been. Um, certainly uh, if you're following international news you'll have seen you know, quite some occurrences south of the border. Um, We're gonna talk to Ben Nolan, who's been on the show before on our uh, leftist, leftist, leftist panel. And then in the second part of the show, we're talking to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. Um, She is an advocate for long-term care residents and the workers in long-term care and has been outspoken both in mainstream media and, of course, on this show as well about what needs to happen there, including probably at this point calling in the army because it's that bad. So we'll hear from her in the second half of the show. But first, I want to talk about what's on everybody's mind. This show is airing on CIUT 89.5 FM on Monday, 4 to 5 p.m., um, or you may have listened to it on podcast a day or so before that. But either way, um, we're coming up to inauguration. Um, We've seen a coup attempt, a feeble one, but scary in the Capitol. And we want to kind of drill down on that. So Ben's going to help us with that. Uh, Ben, if you recall, on the Radical Reverend uh, show, is a doctoral student in political science, political theory at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And Ben, welcome back to the Radical Reverend show. Thanks so much, Sherry. So let's start off. What's it like where you're at? You're in academia, in high academia, uh, and you're in political science. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like, you know, sitting in your cafeteria there.
0: (laughs) What is the buzz? What is the buzz? Trump has been a tremendous trauma to the discipline of political science, which has had its fair share of traumas. It was not prepared for the end of the Cold War. So it was still kind of recovering from the trauma of not having anticipated that. It's been very charged. Of course, it's a bit weird because we're in like in the COVID red. We're not like interacting with each other in cafeterias. We're all mediated by Facebook. Virtual cafeterias. (laughs) Yeah, et cetera. And to be honest, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of formalized discussion trying to come to any sort of departmental consensus on what this all means. But there's been a really personal connection to this whole thing because A sort of right-wing provocateur, ultra-Zionist, who's become known in right-wing media circles named Louis Shanker, was arrested in New York a couple days before the protest, after a Tesla that had been stolen from Nevada and loaded with a fake bomb covered in Black Lives Matter signs, was basically discovered in a parking lot charging station in Queens, The speculation is that it was bound for the protests, the uprising that happened in the Capitol a couple of days later. So our discourse has really been dominated around the issue of like, how do we deal with hardcore right-wing, possibly violent students that are literally out to try to make a spectacle out of maybe us and make us targets of right-wing violence? And so that's been kind of the focus of the discussion in the department. There's a real cursoral reaction to it, especially among the Americans, where suddenly everyone is cheering on the FBI, arguably the agency most responsible for like what happened in their quest to track down and arrest these white supremacists. This is discourse about like, yeah, we should lock them up forever, which I, you know, I think is unlikely that these overwhelmingly middle and upper class, well-connected white people are going to end up in jail for a particularly long time. And I don't think jail is exactly the best place to think that you're going to de-radicalize white supremacists. So that's been interesting to watch and a bit distressing. I think that there's an impulse, especially among the sort of section of the discipline that really sympathizes with the Democratic Party to try to cast this as a kind of 9-11 that gives a sort of moral and premature to push an agenda on the terms that they want to push it. The problem is that the Republicans haven't been cooperating in the way that the Democrats cooperated with the Republicans post 9-11. I mean, the impeachment went through the House with, I think, 11 Republican factors, quote unquote, voting for the Democratic ticket, which means that 95 percent of Republican House members did not support the impeachment. And for a conviction to happen in the Senate, I think that they're going to need about 16 Republicans to come on board. And that seems extraordinarily unlikely. The effect if a conviction happened would be that Trump would be barred from ever pursuing higher office again. So there's this idea that this is this very desirable thing. But at this point, it seems fairly obvious that the impeachment was mostly a symbolic act. I mean, Trump is the first person in history to be impeached twice, and now accounts for half of the presidential impeachments in American history. But it's not clear what the actual consequences of this will be.
1: To get back to the Louis issue, I mean, an ultra Zionist, what strikes me and probably is a bit mind-blowing to listeners is how can someone who is a Jew march shoulder to shoulder with clear neo-Nazis? I mean, people have swastikas <laughs> on their paraphernalia. I mean, how does that happen? I and mean, this is these weird marriages made in hell in the Trump followers. But any thoughts about that? I mean, he, again, was a student at your university.
0: I hesitate to speculate, but there's no shortage of very good reading material on this. A good place to start might actually be Hannah R. N. Seichmann in Jerusalem, which talks a little bit about the way that Zionism, pre the solution to the quote unquote Jewish question that was offered by Hitler, catastrophically, Zionism was offered as an alternate solution to the Jewish question. In a way, reifying the idea that there is this fundamental Jewish question, that there's Jews that are a problem to deal with. It is an anti-universalism, which kind of sets up an idea that you have a commitment to your own narrow political community ahead of any commitment that you have to anyone else, which actually is very compatible with any number of other anti-universalisms notably fascism. But I mean, yeah, like there's a picture of a guy with a shirt that says Camp Auschwitz. There's a real cognitive dissonance there.
1: Absolutely. So what we're calling, I guess, up here, or has been called a fascist coup, and I know people throw the term fascist around pretty loosely. But I mean, clearly, there seem to be a couple of factors there. One that. In a sense, people are saying it's an inside job, but certainly there was some corroboration among the Republicans with some of the vote who were part of this. And then the other aspect of it is the complete lack of security and the involvement of police in it, um, as well as possibly military. These things are the kind of thing that give people, I'm sure, down there nightmares at night. But, you know, what's your take on that?
0: Yeah, so there's been news reports that police officers who were off were part of the march and flashing their badges to try to gain access to the Capitol. Military officers were flashing their credentials to try to gain access to the Capitol. I don't think it should come as a surprise to anybody that American law enforcement is deeply involved in the far right movement in the States. This was something that we've known about since The early 20th century, like law enforcement was born, the sort of American model of policing was born out of the slave patrols in the South. We all know that rage against the machine line, like some of those that our forces are the same that burn crosses. This is something that is not a surprise that the police have been infiltrated by the far right and by white supremacist ideologies. What's surprising to me is in that context, again, how people are looking to the FBI and other police agencies to be the solution to this, which seems tremendously short-sighted, especially if you know anything about the history of the FBI and undermining and persecuting and in many cases murdering activists in the Black and Indigenous movements throughout the 20th century.
1: There was a picture that went around uh, social media that I kind of jokingly reposted and said, is this an art installation? But it was of the National Guard, you know, dozens and dozens of them asleep on the floor of the, the Capitol. And, and I was thinking, uh, it was such a bizarre photo. I mean, what do the Democrats make of that? You know, they certainly were the target of this attempt to rush the building. Um, what if some of those National Guard, what if some of the cops that they think are there supposedly there for their security turn against them? Who could they trust? It must be weird.
0: Right. And I'm sure that that's a source of anxiety for Democratic lawmakers. I mean, maybe I'll end up being wrong about this, but I think it's pretty unlikely at this point. The strangest thing about this to me is this is all happening to prevent a Joe Biden administration, like someone who's been running on a promise to expand police budgets. And like, I think it's very likely that actually deportations will go up under Biden. All these things that are claimed as the policy priorities of this movement. Were very effectively prosecuted under Obama, which Biden is promising to be a, a sort of continuation of. I think there might be more of a threat of capital being behind and the, the sort of larger state apparatus being behind that kind of attack on on democracy. You know, if Sanders had been the nominee, for example, I don't know. I still think it's a bit of a stretch, but uh, I, you know, I really don't see the state siding with this movement against. Biden, who was overwhelmingly the favorite candidate of all of the various industries that most of the system is beholden to. But again, that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be stochastic, violent right-wing incidents. These movements do have a life of their own and minds of their own. And I think we see that internationally, right, where all of these various movements that have been cultivated by American foreign policy agencies, like the MEK in Iran. In Canada, the far right has rallied in support of Trump. Absolutely. Marches here. Yeah. Right. There's a way in which these things seem to be acting autonomously of those interests, which is interesting because it means that there is a fracture on that side of politics.
1: Well, we just had an instance here where Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, has just hired one of the main uh, men behind Ontario Proud to be in part of a, a potential campaign manager for the next campaign. And this is an ultra-right news, well, if you call it news source And has a slogan, let's take back Canada. I mean, this is is Trump language coming out of the so-called progressive Conservative Party of Canada. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you are listening to uh, the Radical Reverend Show. We're talking about all things American because... People are talking about all things American. With Ben Nolan, uh, he's a doctoral candidate in political science and theory at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. And you had mentioned, Ben, about the frequency of international flags and insignia among those who were kind of storming the, the Capitol, which is really interesting, which I don't think I'd seen on mainstream media much of. So talk about that a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because... This movement tends to be portrayed as so ultra-nationalist and because the US and the US is the center of the world, there's like a full stop that happens after that. So again, you don't see this portrayed, but there is an internationalism at play that was evident again in the flags that were being waved in the pictures of this protest. You saw the Indian flag, you saw the South Korean flag, you saw the Japanese flag, I saw the South Vietnamese flag. That's not one that would be familiar to most people since it doesn't exist as a political entity anymore. There was the MEK flag, which is the Iranian flag, except I think it has a griffin in in the center of it. And as I mentioned, there have been all of these solidarity with Trump demonstrations that have been happening literally all over the world. Usually they're quite small, but the idea that this is purely an American fascism or a fascism that's contained within American borders is short-sighted, is wrong. America isn't even really a nation, it's an empire, and it's tied into all of these other nodes internationally, where there's a genuine solidarity with this vision of what politics should look like. And that's sobering. And I I think that that should check us from just dismissing it as an American thing and, and washing our hands of it as Canadians. As you mentioned, Sherry, there's no shortage of disturbing developments happening north of the border.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, clearly in Europe, the rise of the right wing has been used for some time now, and including, you know, neo-fascism in Germany. Uh, so it's there, it's it's everywhere. So I guess, you know, in the time left, uh, what do we do about it is the overarching question that people on the left have to contend with. I mean, part of it, I think, is it's kind of twofold to me, is how did we fail as the left? A lot of these people that we saw storming those steps, these are working class folk, course there's lots and lots of money on the ultra right but many of them are and um you know we failed and then on the other side of that coin is how do we stop failing and start mobilizing
0: i mean i think the one thing that's striking is how not actually working class if you look at the arrest reports and and at you know the, the sort of twitter threads that are putting names to faces of the people that were involved in this was you know there was a lot of cops and military officers But there was a woman that took a private plane to the insurgency. There was the son of a judge in Brooklyn. There was no shortage of small business owners and medium business owners. This this seemed largely a petty bourgeoisie and security employee. Those are kind of the dominant identities that I saw within within that crowd, which isn't to say, again, that there wasn't working class participation. I mean, certainly there
1: was a lot that voted for Trump.
0: Right, right. I think that there's a natural counterforce to this movement that is much more powerful and has a much broader appeal that we saw take the streets this summer. And what's disturbing to me is that the Biden administration has made it absolutely clear that that's not any part of what he sees as a response to this. Rather, for the most part, the response seems to be an amping up of carcerality, of the passing of a domestic terrorism bill as if there's any shortage of laws under which these people could be prosecuted. And to sort of recognize that that's the case, you just need to compare what these people are being charged with, with the charges that were levied against protesters at Trump's inauguration, who many of whom are facing like 70-year jail sentences for being in a crowd where a business's window was broken. You know, And of course, we saw the way that any number of the protesters this summer in the movement that followed the murder of George Floyd, how they were treated by the carceral state and what kind of charges they're facing. The state has no shortage of sticks with which it can hit these people. Again, I think it's a huge mistake to go down that path because it only legitimates the use of those same tools against the left, which is overwhelmingly what they will be used against. And I don't think that prison is a place where deradicalization is going to happen. I don't think there's a carceral solution to all of that. Yeah, absolutely agree
1: 100%. I'm just wondering what are the next steps that we should be taking uh, here, there, everywhere, particularly south of the border, obviously, but everywhere in the world against the rise of the right? And how do we mobilize? I mean, absolutely, you know, the Black Lives Matter uprising was significant, but how do we channel that, I guess, into something that's actually, you know, I mean... To, to use the American example, and I, I wanted to focus on that because that's where you are, you've got gerrymandering, wealth means you get elected, you have to be rich to run, uh, you have to have rich friends to win, senators spend a third of their time fundraising. Um, this is a system run by Wall Street. It's clearly not a democracy in any real way. And then you've got the Electoral College. So how do you take you know, that energy from the streets, from the uprising, on the left, and turn that into something
0: that's going to shift um, the discourse there. What do you do? Yeah, I I wish I could give you a more satisfying positive answer, but I'll give a negative answer, which is that I don't think that this fight is going to be won through like posting, you know, to the extent that the response is happening via social media platforms and people are having arguments on social media platforms. I don't think that that's how that's going to be won. I think that you need to Be connecting with members of your community and with organizations that already exist that are thinking strategically about how to respond to these threats, you know, and how to build social cohesion and bonds that create the sort of resiliency that can stand up to these threats.
1: I wanted to ask you about the squad. Is that the answer? Is the answer the left wing of the Democratic
0: Party? Is it Bernie I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted something that was basically making a similar point to the one that I was making about how there isn't really any shortage of laws that can be used to prosecute these people. And so it's weird that the solution that's being offered is creating more and more carceral bureaucracy and, and giving more weapons to cops. I don't want to like say that that doesn't necessarily play a role, but I don't think that we can sort of sit on our laurels and expect that to be what's going to redeem the country or anything like that. I mean, it's a very small number of voices within this political establishment, mm-hmm. and they've been sequestered away from the levers of power pretty effectively.
1: Yes, we certainly see that in the Biden appointments, that's for sure.
0: Well, yeah, and and in the blocking of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from committee chair appointments that she was like the natural sort of person to get. I'm not hugely optimistic, but I don't, again, want to be so cynical as to say that they're not going to play a role and that they don't have an important role in helping communicate to people what's happening and how to respond to it. So we just have a minute or so left.
1: Speaking to Ben Nolan here, um, University of Massachusetts, Stamhurst, um, political uh, science slash theory doctoral student about uh, all things American that aren't necessarily just American, but um, part of an international, you know, movement to the the right. Um, one might say fascist. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, on inauguration, Ben, what will you be doing?
0: I'll definitely have some popcorn made. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my hands are a little bit tied. I, you know, again, it's, it's an interesting position to be a Canadian in the States for all of this stuff, and especially a Canadian studying politics in the States for all of this. I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back in the classroom with undergrads. Like To me, that really helped me get through the fall was working with the students and sort of having the opportunity to sort of see the world through their eyes and um, help them think through what was happening.
1: Yeah, so, well, certainly next time we talk, we'll have to talk about the universities, all universities' role in all of this, because they're not the neutral, impartial uh, institutions they pretend to be. Far from it. Um, at any rate, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun, and we'll talk again at some point. Take care, Ben, and stay safe.
0: Bye-bye. Thank you, Sherry. It was a pleasure, and you as well.
1: Welcome. Uh, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. And we're so delighted to have on yet again, uh, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos. Uh, she is not only a professor, uh, but a specialist in long-term care and gerontology. And what we know her as in this city and beyond the city is, is one of the wonderful advocates for those seniors of ours and loved ones who find themselves in long-term care, which I have dubbed on Twitter occasionally, hashtag long-term crime these days. Uh, But we have a new day in Ontario, uh, Dr. Vivian. We have uh, a new lockdown, so to speak. So first and foremost, I'd like to talk about that. Um, What was your reaction when you saw the new guidelines?
2: A little confused. (laughs) A little confusing. Um, I'm not quite sure if they're going to have the desired effect. Um, but I guess that's that's to be determined. We will see. I mean, I'm sure it's going to do something. But, uh, you know, you hear from other experts who talk about different kinds of lockdown measures that may be needed. And uh, those recommendations, per se, have not been discussed. But as it relates to long-term care, I don't think it's going to make a difference on long-term care, sadly.
1: So let's look at the situation in long-term care. I mean, it's been quite a journey when this started making news. And as we know, I mean, again, data is difficult, and I assume you're finding the same thing I am, but in terms of the number of actual deaths, but we know that the vast majority of deaths in Canada and certainly in Ontario from COVID have been in long-term care. So maybe just for those who didn't catch our last discussion, maybe just talk about that a little. Why is that?
2: Well, the sector was not prepared for this kind of outbreak, it was um, known to have chronic staffing shortages well before the pandemic, and issues with you know improperly trained workforce, uh, largely unregulated workforce. Um, we knew that there were problems heading into the pandemic, and then when the pandemic hit, uh, it was it was just a complete disaster, um, especially in the early days, given the you know global shortage of PPE. But you know the first wave came and and it went and um, we had our own you know creation of our own PPE stockpiles and that wasn't an issue. And we knew what we needed to do based on the lessons learned in the first wave in order to protect this sector ahead of the second wave. However, our government simply did not implement the recommendations of experts. And here we are now with a projected um, mortality even greater for the second wave than the first wave. And that really shouldn't be happening given that we learned, we should have learned lessons from the first wave and we don't have that shortage of PPE anymore.
1: So tell me what they should have done. I mean, you know, we, we've we learned about COVID and, uh, you know, for months now we've gone through the first wave. But even before that, I mean, it's not the first time that outbreaks of flu or pre you know that even SARS um, that we've seen uh, long-term care be hard hit so what in preparation or just as a general rule what should the government have been doing that would have mitigated this?
2: Uh, It's clear we have a, a slew of recommendations I mean one of them being unfortunately in Ontario And a lot of this was lobbied by the for-profit industry to cut down on inspections in the first wave. And that was a big mistake, Um, especially the resident quality inspections that could have detected a lot of these very preventable IPAC violations. Um, Improper cohorting, improper use of PPE, for example. And sadly, uh, the government listened to this lobby and curtailed the amount of inspections that were actually occurring. So that was a big problem. Some of us were calling for more frequent and ongoing inspections, but weren't uh, necessarily listened to. Um, failure to place in- independent IPAC leads in each home. This is something that not only the long-term care commissioners urged in their interim reports, but it's also been at play in Quebec since August, and that was shown to be very effective. We knew we needed these because of the, you know, ground floor accounts of of repeated violations in infection prevention and control policies. That didn't happen. Uh, obviously, not expediting vaccination. I mean, really, we could have finished all long-term care homes by now had we actually had a proper plan in place that treated vaccination like the emergency operation it was, targeting it to long-term care and not again diverting it to acute care, to hospitals. That was a big mistake. Quebec instituted uh, their vaccination clinics, half of them, inside long-term care homes. They were smart. We did not learn those lessons. Um, Failure to implement, and this is probably the most important, a uh, sector-wide staffing blitz. We were calling on this from the spring. We knew that not only did we lose a lot of our long-term care workforce after the first wave because a lot of these workers got very sick or still dealing with you know, long-hauling uh, symptoms and frankly made the decision that it wasn't worth it to stay in these very dangerous and very stressful traumatic jobs with what they endured in the first wave, particularly given the fact that our government didn't enact proper safeguards and they more than anyone and the residents could see that because it affected them the most so we knew we lost upwards of a th- you know a third of that psw population and not only did we not try to fill that staffing gap we didn't even account for the fact that it was going to be worse in the second wave. It was very clearly predicted early on that when kids went back to school and when September hit, the second wave would hit and and many epidemiologists predicted it would be worse and we would not be able to have hospitals swoop in and save the day because their resources would be limited. So we knew we needed a staffing blitz like Quebec who hired 10,000 workers ahead of the second wave. It didn't happen here. Um, We had a suggestion back in the summer uh, myself, Dr. Arya and Dr. Amina Jabbar about um, how these homes and the government should have these homes reveal their staffing levels in real time, like updating them on some sort of centralized public website, so that if we see the staffing levels dip, that is an indication that these outbreaks are starting. And we can then divert help proactively versus right now, this reactive, terrible situation where we only send in help once it becomes a public scandal, effectively, because advocates like us and you make a, make a scene about it. And then finally, the local hospital is sent in to try to help. But even they are pushed to their limits right now because of rises in community transmission. I mean, I could go on and on, but these are some of the big ones.
1: One of the uh, problems that has been a part of long-term care, particularly for-profit long-term care, for years and years now, because when I was in the provincial government, it was an issue even back then. We heard of you know seniors being left in soiled diapers, et cetera, et cetera. The number of hours per resident per day of care, and maybe say a bit about that.
2: Well, I'm I'm very clear in my position that for-profit has to go. I mean, the evidence is very clear. I mean, during the first wave of the pandemic, uh, 90% of the homes taken over by the province because of you know forced mandatory uh, or voluntary management orders because they couldn't get their outbreaks under control were for-profit. Five of the six military homes, for-profit. Research showed that not only did they were more likely, residents in for-profit homes were more likely to contract COVID, but they were far more likely to die as a result of it. And a lot of this also is left to the fact that these homes, these for-profit providers tended to buy up the older homes and they didn't upgrade them. Keep in mind, they had 20 plus years to upgrade these homes. These, A lot of these homes have wardrooms and some of the experts have tried to say that that's the only reason why it's not. Don't buy into that rhetoric. Wardrooms is part of the problem, sure. And the, they, don't get me wrong, these companies had the money to make the upgrades. Why didn't they? Who knows why didn't the subsequent governments, not just the Ford government, but previous governments, why didn't they make sure that these homes actually, you know, upgraded their facilities? Because keep in mind, they knew, as you had pointed out earlier, that overcrowded facilities with these ward rooms, every year, these homes suffered with higher rates of seasonal flu and other respiratory viruses. The danger was known in these overcrowded, older design standard homes, yet nothing was done to fix them. But furthermore, we know that typically in these homes, understaffing is a problem. There's more of a greater reliance on uh, agency workers, which also is problematic. It's just the for-profit model has consistently failed. Uh, You look at the death rates, you look at the quality of care provided, you look at the staffing, the organization of labor in these homes, they have failed. On the whole, when you look at the data, there is no question that that model has to go it just has to go and i mean even today uh, a report was published early in the lancet it's well it says it's january 16th released but it released a day early and uh, Pat armstrong who is uh reference in there who i i love she's literally the long-term care expert in canada she's brilliant um and she you know very clear it, it, when you read her little excerpt in that article that um, she attributes this problem to the failure of, you know, early governments to include long-term care in the Canada Health Act. And, you know, re- researchers are not saying to this point that we need to necessarily amend the Canada Health Act, but I've also been having conversations with the PMO's office and various um, levels of government to say we need a parallel form of of legislation, maybe amending Medicare that actually accounts for both long-term care and home care because both institutional and home care need to be accounted for. This was a big problem that was not factored in, you know, back in the days when the Canada Health Act was created and assumed that there would be this stay-at-home female workforce that did this labor for free, reproductive labor in the household, often hidden. Because they didn't work in the paid labor market. Things have changed dramatically with the second wave of the women's movement and women entering en masse into the paid labor market. And we don't have those reproductive laborers anymore. And we don't have any some sort of system that accounts for that very
1: massive gap that we used to have. I'm speaking here, and just if I might interrupt, um, I'd love to hear you, and we will go on, uh, Dr. <laughs> Vivian Stam- uh, Stamatopoulos, you uh, certainly advocate and long-term care expert as well as professor, who's been very vocal, the leading voice, I would say, in Ontario on this file. One of the things uh, that I just wanted to get in there is, you know, and we talked about this last time, is you know, some 171 million was paid out to investors oh, in long-term care, yep. so uh, um, th- the profit motive, of course. That's on top of the dollar spent on care. So just so we're very clear, $171 that could have gone into these Mm -hmm. homes that did not. I also want to just point out one aspect. I spoke to a PSW personal support worker who used to travel from home to home to home, even in the early days, even in the first wave of COVID, still traveling, clearly not safe. But I want to ask you, you've been speaking to the Prime Minister's office, you among others, what has the response been? Do you think there's any action going to happen? We're certainly not getting yeah. from Dr. Fullerton's office, who's the uh, minister in charge of this file provincially. So what about federally?
2: Well, this is why I started concentrating my efforts on, uh, on the federal level. And you know, in these conversations, I'll admit, um, and I'm, hey, I'm a fiery Greek woman, I can't hide my emotions. So when I hear people tell me there's jurisdictional issues, and I and you know, I think they could tell that I was a little upset with that. With that answer, because frankly, put that crap aside. People are dying. This is a crisis. If you don't have power at the PMOs level, then who has power, right? So I, I effectively, you know, took a. To, I am an aggressive woman. What can I say? So my stance was very clear to the people in the room when we had this conversation that I don't care. You need to do what you need to do to help, because at this point, this is a true crisis. We know what's going to happen in the next month or two. And it's not going to be good. And these seniors need somebody to help them. And, um, and it's, you know, I, I don't know if a couple days later, we saw the PMO actually call and have a discussion with Ford, our premier, right? So whether that was because of the pressure we've been putting on, I don't know, I would hope that would be very, very, you know, <laughs> that would give us a tap on the back if we actually motivated the prime minister to call premier Ford, but Sadly, Premier 4 continues to refuse the assistance of the military, which is just astonishing, given the fact that we have more outbreaks now than ever before. We have far more deadlier and larger, more concentrated outbreaks than ever before. And there is no better time to bring in federal, effectively free labor, so to speak. They're offering it. They're going to give you the money. They're going to give you the supports. Why wouldn't you take it? It makes zero sense not to take that help that we so desperately need
1: i remember when the military did go in and the first wave and what they found there you have posted around orchard villa for example maybe just tell us a little bit about what they found and and that might be the clue to why they don't want them going in again and finding perhaps the same even worse situation what did they find when they went in
2: Oh, it was a nightmare i mean you know residents were malnourished uh, there was massive weight loss because these poor residents weren't being fed someone actually died from being choked because they were fed lying down we're like what if things that you could never even imagine happening right now in ontario in canada in healthcare but happening um residents falling and not being attended to in time like serious injuries uh that were unattended um Residents being left in soil diapers so long that, you know, they they had skin breakdowns and then they, those became infected and that can become deadly. I mean, just horrifying negligence. I mean, there were insect infestations in many homes, broken or malfunctioning elevators, windows. I mean, these places were just completely unsafe for these residents and not only because there wasn't enough staff um, but also staff a lot of the staff that were working were not properly trained so they made various mentions of how you know both nursing staff and um, other workers just did not have updated and proper health uh, care skills to provide the, the required care um, in addition to workers who were just thrown onto the floor with zero training whatsoever, because that's a smart idea in the most dangerous sector at the most vulnerable time. Right. Um, So things like this. So of course, have people, the first thing that people have started to say when uh, premier Ford turned down that help twice now, not once, but twice is that they don't want another military report. They don't want another bombshell report that will not only show that you know, things have not improved in the second wave but actually have gotten worse.
1: Yeah, and and one could be a little cynical and say when you look at at who sits on the boards of many of these long-term facilities, you're seeing a whole lot of one particular party that are sitting there and that have vested interests there that you yeah. know, would not be in their best interest. Now, um, th- there's so much to talk about uh, talking uh, again to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos here on the Radical Reverend Show. One doesn't know where to start. Of course, the Ford government made it more difficult to sue long-term yep. homes. But today, um, we saw an announcement that there still is a lawsuit going ahead for Extendicare, some 200000000 million they're going oh,
2: after. I have words for Extendicare. Say them. <laughs> yes. So listen, and this is something that I also brought into conversation with the PMO's office, that what we, oh, part of the, the thing we need to do, apart from bringing long-term care and home care into public delivery, nonprofit delivery exclusively, but in the interim, creating national standards until we actually phase out private standards, uh, private long-term care. So part of that is increasing the penalties and the fines for these bad actors. And a prime example I gave to the PMO's office is that of extended care. Extended Care is a Canadian company uh, and in the States, in 2014, they were effectively litigated out of America in the largest settlement in US history involving a nursing home chain, because they were found to have failed to hire enough nurses and professionals, which led to what they described as pervasive problems, including the failure to prevent serious falls and head injuries, failure to prevent bed sores. Sound familiar? Um, allowing patients to become malnourished and dehydrated and develop infections that led to unnecessary hospitalizations. And according to the assistant attorney general in the case, these problems, quote unquote, stemmed in large part from extended care's business model, a model that was driven more by profit and less by the quality of care provided. Now, as per the 43 million record salary, I mean, sorry, uh, penalty that they were levied, they had to agree to enter in a five-year, wait for it, corporate integrity agreement requiring an independent monitor to assess their staffing levels and other measures to ensure that they were improving quality. What did they do instead? They said meh, we don't want to deal with that so they sold they they sold their entire portfolio in the states and I imagine then concentrated on Canada Like are you kidding me? this is the kind of forceful approach we should be taking to these bad actors in Canada when we are when we are failing, to protect our seniors, vis-a-vis America, uh, we got a problem there because generally we'd like to think we're more superior and we treat better because we have public health care and, and we're a superior country. <laughs> you know, whether that's true or not, um, when it comes to long-term care, it would appear not to be true.
1: That's one of the myths, the prevailing myth, of course, about uh, long-term care in Canada is... That, you know, it's first of all, people don't understand that a lot of it is privatized sometimes. Um, And second of all, uh, that somehow because we're Canadian and Medicare, blah, blah, uh, that it is better. And in fact, it's not great, not great in terms of the world standards, not even U.S. So this lawsuit is going forward. Um, It's I mean, Extended Care is not alone, though. There are other players in the in the private, you know, for profit. Yes you know, care world um, that definitely uh, needs some action. So, I mean, here we are. I mean, I I was one of the, uh, talking again to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, uh, advocate, professor, um, expert on long-term care, about the situation, which is now a humanitarian crisis. I mean, let's name it for what it is in our long-term care. Majority of deaths from COVID uh, come from long-term care in our seniors. And uh, today um, you posted, or was it yesterday, um, a picture of a typical meal that was sent to you, um, which was, uh, just to to draw a picture for folk out there in listener land, kind of a half a piece of, of white toast and a shriveled up sausage as being a meal for someone, I mean, people just don't get it. And part of this, and maybe you can talk about this, is the lack of eyes on by families and people who care. So talk maybe about the lack of family involvement now.
2: Well yeah a family are increasing being increasingly being limited i mean uh, there is the there is supposed to be the allowance of one essential caregiver who still has access and quite frankly that is the individual who sent me that photo the essential caregiver of her mother in long term care and and granted i i don't know if i don't know if that is indicative of most meals in facilities but that was the particular meal at that particular facility for her mother that day. And obviously she was understandably upset. Um, And unfortunately, you know, people tend to think that... (laughs) everything is fine in the absence of family, but family are so important to being really whistleblowers and, and pointing out when things are not okay. And this home is a heavenly, it's a large home. It's a for-profit home and it's currently being hit in outbreak. It's got a very large outbreak. And is it, is, was that a, in hindsight because there wasn't enough staff in the kitchen because there are staffing gaps, who knows? But the point is, what if that family member wasn't there? Right. What if they weren't there to say, "Um, this is not a proper meal, we need another option here, this is not okay, That then that family member wouldn't have eaten. And this is what we're hearing, that a lot of malnutrition links to just either not enough staff to feed the residents properly, because it takes a lot of time to feed a lot of seniors in these facilities. It's not, they need assistance with being fed, and you can't force feed these individuals, lest you end up in these choking cases or instances. So. Unfortunately, family are the most important safeguard for these seniors in these homes, bar none. There's no question about it. Any limitations on their access will lead to more deaths, will lead to more neglect, and will lead to violations. Quite frankly, I had a family member reach out to me three weeks ago about an an outbreak that was starting. And um, they had noticed clear IPAC violations on the floor when they were visiting and they alerted me and I alerted the local public health officer. And unfortunately the public health officer did not intervene. And now that home is upwards of a hundred cases and now his mother might die because of it. And I am just so upset for him. And, and even when you do whistleblow, unfortunately we have a system right now that is not, um, fast enough to act on the account of not only families who are whistleblowing, but even me trying to help out as an advocate saying, you need to get help into this home. This is not okay. There are things happening here that are contributing to preventable death. Get help in this home. Help was not sent in. And now we have to live with the fact that this person, this family member, like a lot of the family members that I've grown very fond of, might lose his loved one because of this. And that makes me incredibly sad and incredibly angry at the same time.
1: The Red Cross has apparently been in some 20 homes um, since the outbreak began. But the call from the Ontario Health Coalition and as well from you, as we've heard this.
2: Yeah, they're not good enough.
1: Is that the army needs to go in now. I mean, they really are dealing with crisis intervention.
2: Well, yeah. But here's the thing that people don't realize. and, And this is why I've been hitting this home is that Red Cross are just civilians. I had a few of these reservists actually reach out to me and tell me that they they can't even assist with feeding because they don't have CPR training <laughs> like this they are not a backup for the military the military were comprised of medical teams of two registered nurses 10 medical technicians and surrounding general duties personnel i mean there's no comparison between the military healthcare teams and the Red Cross, the Red Cross effectively are porters in these homes. They send them. Okay, you run and do this. You clean this. Uh, deliver this tray to this resident, but you can't help them eat it. Well, well, I'm sorry, but as, as well intentioned as they are, and don't get me wrong, I'm not. This is not a you know um, an attack on the Red Cross because I, I love these people for for trying to help and wanting to help, but they are not the call. Um, they are not good enough to replace military health teams.
1: You're listening to the Radical Reverence Show, either on podcast or on CIT 89.5 FM. And I'm talking to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is the advocate uh, currently for long-term care in our province, a uh, professor, uh, expert in the field. And we're talking about the situation, obviously. it It's a humanitarian crisis. I want to go back to the government lack of action here. We've heard in recent press conferences, uh, the premier it was the, the most egregious case of baffle gab I think I've ever heard when he was asked about where is the army and why isn't the army going in since, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> since the prime minister offered, offered that help. And he kind of blathered on, but basically didn't give an answer. So there's that. And clearly, the call is sent in the military, um, not just for field hospitals, as he did mention, or for whatever. Uh, but vaccination go, rollout, yeah, go into the homes yeah. and help yeah. out. But also, you know, we have a minister uh, of that portfolio who wasn't oh. part of these conversations. Which oh, she! kind of interesting. She wasn't even there on the screen. Absolutely, we were all saying, "Where is she? Has she talked to you at all? Has she reached out to you at all?" Never
2: once. And what I find hilarious is that they refuse to engage with me um, no matter how many times I've obviously, and you've all seen me directly try to engage with her um, in email as well. But instead they go around me and they'll try to engage with people who have either recently interviewed me or people that they know I've had high ranking meetings with. So recently they reached out to um, uh, uh, Melissa Miller, who's a long-term care lawyer, who I've been including in a lot of these meetings I have with the PMO's office in terms of, you know, how to really affect positive change going forward. Um, and and they try to, you know, what they do is they'll, they'll go to them and then try to say, oh no, like everything is okay. You're misinformed or like, look what we're doing. and they'll try to present like these, you know, sound bites in writing that we are actually trying, or I've also heard that they send out emails to people um, usually within a day of conveniently having, you know, some correspondence with me saying, I noticed some of your tweets. <laughs> and then it goes on to list a bunch of things, but but you know, your tweets are critical, is the, the subtext, but don't believe them because look, we're doing X, Y, and Z. And it's just ridiculous. That's the only time you ever hear from her, which really I think is her staff, who are tweeting and sending these inane emails, which are just offensive and actually only enrage these individuals more who receive these. But when it comes to actually listening to the experts and listening to the advocates, where is she? She is nowhere to be found.
1: Well, uh, sadly, I have to stop the interview at this point. I would love to go on. Um, You're listening to The Radical Reverend Show. I'm the host, Sherry DeNovo. I've been talking to Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, who is uh, the advocate, really, at the moment in Ontario uh, and expert in the long-term care field. And boy, do we need uh, more uh, on behalf of the families who you've seen on your screens. Um, You've seen uh, Dr. Vivian on your screens as well. And uh, from the government, answer very little, if any. So, thank you so much uh, for being on the Radical Reverend Show, and do keep in touch.
2: It's my pleasure. <laughs>